Recovery Radio, where we discuss substance abuse treatment and recovery. You can listen live at blogtalkradio.com forward slash OCG Radio. Please note that the views and opinions of our hosts and guests are not necessarily the views of OCG, nor is it meant to replace professional advice or the advice of your physician. And now, here's our show, Roach on Recovery, with your host, Orville Roach. Welcome back, folks, to Roach on Recovery. It's been about three weeks. 646-564-9909 is our number. My name is Orville Roach, your host. My producer, co-host, call screener extraordinaire, Mr. Morales, are you there? In the building, in the building. Can everybody, can everybody hear me? Blog talk. Any listeners? Everybody. Before I get cut off here, am I fully audible? Uh, as of this moment, you are. So we'll timestamp it. <laughs> well done. Well done. Excited. Excited to be back and having things working. We're knocking on some wood here. All I got is particle board, so I'll double knock on it. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Um. So right now, uh, we're we're not running off of uh, string and uh, soup cans, uh, and hopefully, <laughs> it'll, it, it, hopefully it'll stay that way. Yes. Um. All right, let's get right to it. I got some news. I got some news. Oh, hit us with the news. Can I get my news hopefully, clip at the very least? Hopefully it's well. See, I'm 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 scanning for it now because you know I love that inside the news clip, but uh, wasn't uh, you know this is a surprise? Wasn't sure you were gonna hit us with the clip. Let's there drop you know, the just, news. Just happens automatically. Yes. So last week I got a phone call from. Uh, no, I'm sorry. It was about ten days ago. I got a phone call from. Uh, an oldie but a goodie, Neil Krosky, who I have to oh, return, yeah. return his call, which I will do. Um, so, Neil, I know you listen. I'm, I'll, I will be calling you, calling you back. Uh, but part of the reason why he was calling was to make me aware. At, at the moment in time it was happening, he called me, I guess, or shortly after it ended. But it was during the president's news conference in regards to uh, the opioid crisis. 
Um, and so I think why he called, and he'll let me know if this is accurate or not, was because when I listened to the replay of it, he spoke about uh, making it easier for states to request the waiver of the 16-bed rule when it comes to Medicaid. Mm, okay. Um, so as you as you know from 2015-16 when we spent a decent amount of time talking about this as California was going through its process of requesting the waiver mm-hmm. um, and the big issue with the waiver was that there's this rule from the 1950s when the Medicaid regulations were written and then ultimately enacted in the 60s uh, that limits the number of beds a residential program can have, which is 16, that's why it's called the 16-bed rule, and still be eligible to receive Medicaid funding. And so when the Affordable Care Act was passed and then went into effect um, in 2014 and then, you know, further into effect in 2016, um, it expanded Medicaid and California requested a waiver so that it could use Medicaid funding to fund alcohol and drug treatment. And, and that was fine in terms of outpatient services and so on, but it was never utilized for residential unless it was 16 beds and under and the pri- unless it was primarily a mental health base because that's where the regs were written. So California did get a waiver, and, uh, but it took some time and some negotiation. So I'm hoping that uh, they're going to make it easier for states to do one of two things. Number one, obtain the waiver, and then two, um, have the length of time for the waiver be longer than five years. So, so we'll see if it's not just you know rhetoric versus uh, you know action that's actually going to happen and help uh, programs all over the country um, be able to provide more treatment and receive and have the availability or access to different funding streams such as Medicaid. So we'll keep our fingers crossed. Yep, we we will. We'll see. Um that's all I got for news at the moment. Who knows? Something may pop into my head <laughs> later on. <laughs> all right. Well let's let's hit some NFL. Let's hit some NFL. You want to hit the NFL? Man, we got the draft upcoming. It's, uh, I never thought you'd ask. How about them, Cowboys? Oh, wonderfully done! Wonderfully done. How about so, him? Go ahead. You want to? Who's your? Uh, who's your draft? Who? Who do you got your eyes on in the draft? Who are you lusting after? First, I think I would be remiss if I didn't first start by talking about my New York Jets and that horrible, horrible trade that they made to move up from the sixth spot to the third spot. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Giving up this year's number six pick, and if I'm not mistaken, a first-rounder next year? 
I think and that then, I think yeah. And then the following year, a second or third rounder. Are they out of their minds? Just to move up three spots because they think one of the three quarterbacks is going to be taken? Hey, that's, you know, I mean, you and, saw and, if you and, paid any attention to the draft last year, uh, we just flip-flopped a spot with a team, uh, you know, two for three, and got an additional, like, second and fourth round pick or something like that. Unbelievable. And it's not like Dan Marino's in this draft. Yeah, there's no, not that anyone can see. There's no Dan Marino or Peyton Manning. There's no sure thing. Hmm. So, I'm not happy with that. But but your Jets are making moves. What about uh the the talk that uh it's going to be very unlikely that Odell Beckham Jr. returns as a New York Football Giant. Well, I don't know who the hell is going to be giving up two first round picks for him. I don't think anybody will be, but I don't know if that's going to if that's going to force the Giants' hand and force them to lower their asking price because now Beckham is swearing up and down. If this trade doesn't happen, he's he's not going to play football. So I would let him not play football. But he's, I, I mean, first of all, the Giants are out of their damn minds thinking that someone's going to give him two first-round picks. Even though this guy's only 25, but he's he's a troublemaker. He's you know he's a he's a diva receiver. So. Who's going to give up two first-round picks to take on that? Plus, he said he wants to be the highest-paid, not only the highest-paid receiver, the highest-paid player in the NFL. So he's out of his mind there. Um, yeah. Now, if and they he's, said coming, on, and he's first, coming off a blown Achilles or whatever it was. Not Achilles. He just had a, a tibula fracture. So that's 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 no problem. That's going to heal with no problem. But, um, you know, then you got the video that came out with him sitting around my hands are in air quotes, some weed and some uh, cocaine. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. That, that's that's unresolved as of this moment. But maybe a first-round pick and a third or a fourth, but not – that's only because he's 25, by the way. Um, so you can get a good five years. But the key thing for any team that's going to trade with the Giants is that they're going to have to first know that they can sign him. If you're going to give up a first-round pick, forget anything else, but if you're going to give up a first-round pick, you have to know that you can sign this guy. Otherwise, That's you're just wasting, wasting a pick. Right, exactly. Yeah, you don't, want a, you don't want a rental receiver that you've wasted a first-round pick on who won't even sign an extension with you. Right. So that's that. But if I were the Giants, I would play hardball. Yeah, just tell them, hey, you you can sit then. Uh, you'll you'll play the fourth year or whatever the fifth year, whatever it is on his rookie contract, and you'll like it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's uh, that's interesting stuff. What what about the? Do, are you sold on any quarterbacks in the draft now that the Jets have made this move? Is is there a quarterback you'd like to see them draft at three? I I think uh, all of these guys are just you know one of three musketeers. So I I don't think there's anyone that's head and shoulders above the rest. So sure. you know pick one you know roll the dice pick one or the other it doesn't make a difference to me. I will say this just moving on back to the New York Giants before we hit the Cowboys and then your Forty Niners. Um, I'm hoping the Giants take a quarterback with the second pick. And, and not the running back, but that's for more selfish reasons in terms of being in the NFC East. I do not want I do not want to have to face this guy 
Barkley. Two yeah, times Saquon a year. Barkley. <laughs> right. Two times a year. Um, so I'm hoping that the Giants go quarterback, especially since Eli's on his last legs. But um, so that's that. Now on to the Cowboys. Um, nobody knows what they're going to do. They're all over the map. Me personally, what would what would I want to see them draft? I think if Will Hernandez, the, the left guard, is there, I would take him. And that line is solidified for the next five years. Yeah. Solidified for the next five years. They've already brought in their swing tackle. They've already got a backup guard and center that they brought in, you know, low-cost free agents. So they, they, they need a plug-and-play guard that will be there for the next 10 years for them. The reason I say five years is because Tyron Smith turns 28, and so I believe he's, he's got about five prime years left. Sure. What, uh, what position are the Cowboys selecting it? 19. 19, okay. Because there's that uh, – he won't fall to 19, but there's that guard, Quentin Nelson, that everyone swears is the best guard prospect basically ever coming out in the draft. Uh, Unless he makes all pro as a rookie, like Zach Martin did, I doubt it. Yeah, that's what people are, that's what people are saying. Normally you don't even hear a guard being talked about as a top 10 pick. Um, They were saying if there weren't so many quarterback needy teams, you'd see this guard drafted, you know, top three, top five in this draft. What position does he play? What position does he play in college? He played guard in college, Notre okay, Dame. So yeah, so usually a guard will not never goes in the top ten, right? Because uh, oftentimes there are tackles who might go in the top ten who are going to stay as tackles, and there are a lot of tackles who go between eleven and twenty who are college tackles, but they're like pro guards, which right? Is what Zach right. Martin? Zach Martin was a tackle at Notre Dame, but he you know he he was drafted to play guard, right? So we'll see. We will now, have to see now, indeed. Now to your uh your whiners. I mean Niners, my bad. Yes, yes, the forty niners. Uh you know, it's interesting. There's a lot of debate out there as to whether or not they should trade out of that top ten pick. Um, because they might be able to get a slew of picks from a team who's desperately trying to get into the top ten to grab one of these top four quarterbacks. Um and so, you know, my school of thought, I wouldn't mind. I wouldn't be an upset fan if we traded that pick to get a host of other picks because I believe we are still a team that has a lot of holes to fill. I don't believe that we're a team that's like one, you know, stud wide receiver away, so to speak. Can I caution uh, you on something? Yeah, go can for I, it. Can I caution you on something? <clears throat> so you know who uh, uh, your quarterback what, what did I nickname him? It's been so long. I forgot what I, I, I called him. I think you threw giraffe in there somehow. Giraffe or yeah, yeah, something, no, like, something ridiculous like that. Yeah, giraffe yeah. Um You know who, who he's compared to, right? Tony Romo is what I've heard. Yeah, Tony Romo. And so you know what the Cowboys did, uh, which is part of the reason why Romo didn't win. The mistake the Cowboys made. And the Niners shouldn't make the same mistake. And that is the, the Cowboys didn't address their offensive line until Romo almost yep. got killed. Yep. And this guy is similar to Romo, quick release, accurate passer. 
So mm-hmm. I hope the Niners don't think, okay, we can go cheap on our O-line because this guy gets rid of the ball, he's accurate, so we don't have to worry about it. And then this guy starts getting killed. Right. So if I were them, I would make sure that, you know, it's been proven over time. Your Niners proved it in the, you know, four years ago, right? Four or five years yeah. ago. That yep. when you get a stud line, your team's going to go places. So That's right. To me, if they, if, they get a, if they can get a lineman, I don't know what their needs are. Do they still have, uh, what's his name, Staley? Yep. Okay. Does he still have any time Bill Staley, left? But, uh, yeah, I would give him maybe this year, maybe one more. Okay. Uh, but they've got his replacement, who's been playing right tackle for the past okay. two or three years, and Trent Brown, who everyone has stated in pro football focus has him graded out as one of the best tackles in the game. So the idea is that he's just going to play right until Staley hangs him up and then he'll slide over to the left. How are um, you guys up the, up the middle? How's your, your, well, so your... that's just it, right? We signed this guard from, uh, well, a uh, uh, middle line from the, in free agency this year. And he, we made him like the second highest paid, uh, you know, interior lineman in the league. We got him from your your football giants, in fact. That's not, that's not a good sign. Yeah, Weston Richburg <laughs> or something like that. Um, he, he's been graded out as maybe the second okay. best okay. center in the league. So his name moving forward is going to be Weston Poorberg. There you, uh, <laughs> there you go. Because Eli did get killed up the gut. So I'd like to know what the hell he was doing to deserve such a big contract. Yeah, well, he actually did not play last year. So he was in a concussion protocol. And oh, wow. then uh And then when they um, – well, I guess maybe when he was ready to come back, the Giants season was already kind of lost and they didn't want to so, risk anything with his head injury. So you know what the D-line is going to start doing, right? They're going to head slap him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that's probably true. Oh, that's probably true. Um, but yeah, so they're they're definitely not, you know, not looking at the line, right? So they got their tackles in place, and now they've got one of the best centers in the game, and they still have this first rounder, Joshua Garnett, who plays guard, who who was an All Pro, uh, I'm sorry, an All Collegiate, All American guard at Stanford, who we used with our first round pick two years ago, who was on IR last year. And so they're saying in training camp, if they see him healthy and come back, he'll be uh, one of your starting guards, and he's supposed to be real good. And so then that leaves one one guard spot, and then potentially you have to draft your tackle for the future, right? Because if this, if this young right tackle moves over to left when Staley's gone, call it a year or two years from now, you're going to have that right tackle hole to fill. But they're right. definitely addressing the line. Okay. I'm hoping – I, I'm hoping if they do keep that number nine pick, that they either draft Tremont Edmonds or Roquan Smith. These are Roquan Smith won the Buckus Award last year, and Tremont Edmonds is supposed to be a real versatile linebacker who can who can be an edge rusher. So uh, I, I'd be happy with either of those, especially because we don't know what our guy, what's going to happen with Reuben Foster if the district attorney's office decides to throw the book at him. Well, we'll see, but. Uh, uh... Three weeks from Thursday will be the draft, I believe, um, and or Friday, three weeks from Friday, one of those two days. So what we'll do is uh, we should be on schedule to have a show right before the draft, and we'll do our own mock picks. Yeah, yeah, for, there we go. For our, for our respective teams and uh, see how it plays out. 
That'll be good. All right. All right. Let's rock and roll. Let's uh, hit our topic for today. Let's do it. Let's get into it. You can't heal what you can't feel. Now, this is a a spinoff from a show we did, I believe, in sometime in 2015, um, where we got into uh, – it was a – and that show was a play on words and a take from a favorite phrase of uh, a daytop um, oldie, Felix Arroyo, who for many years was the director of staff training. Um, in the 80s and through the mid-90s. And he, one of his favorite sayings was, what's the feeling? So that was mm-hmm. the title of our show, What's the Feeling? So, and in that show, we talked about, um, you know, different feelings, naming them, um, uh, talking about the, the, you know, the order in which people would feel different things based on different experiences and how important it was to be able to identify it, verbalize it, speak to it, um, uh, validate it, because um, there's no free lunch. You don't just get to say, hey, this is how I feel, and not val- validate it, i.e., make it real, um, and so that it's not imaginary, etc. So you can't heal what you can't feel is an extension of that, um, and in essence, what we're and we're, we're going to get into the nitty gritty of it. But in essence, what the title is saying is, we know that coming into treatment, especially in the residential realm, okay, there is an adjustment period and an adapting period to. Uh, there's a physical adjustment and a physical adapting that has to take place to being in this new environment. And however long that may take, whether it's 30 days, 60 days, or 90 days, whatever the time frame is for, for the person, for the client, once that's over, the expectation is, is that we'll now dig 100% of our energy will go deep into the psychosocial aspect of treatment. And that is, let's talk about our life experiences, the impacts those may have had, um, the, the more traumatic experiences and the impacts those may have had, and what do we have to do to uh, put those in their proper place, in their proper perspective, so that we can move forward in a healthy fashion without those things. And obviously, I'm talking about experiences that have been deemed to be negative experiences, and the only and so and the only person who can deem that is you, the person, not an external party. So you have to come forth with what the experiences are and what they mean to you, in a negative sense, how they've affected you, how they've impacted you, and then of course be willing to do whatever work is necessary. And depending on what it is, the work may be a little, it may be a lot, but whatever it may be. You have to be willing to do the work in order to get to where it is that we need to get to. So, obviously, in the title, we're saying if 
we don't attack those experiences, especially the traumatic ones. If we don't do what we have to do to get underneath them and explore them, examine them, etc., and they're just, you know, you just brush over them with, in a surface manner, you really don't dig deep. Then, and so uh, because of not digging deep, you don't really feel the experience or the effects of the experience in, in talking about them and reexamining and so on and so forth. They're, they're just on a surface level or on an intellectual level, but not on a, a, a feeling level. And if you don't, I, I'm, I'm going to use a phrase, but that's, it's, it's not the exact phrase. So maybe, Mr. Producer, you can think, come up with something or help me think of something. I'm going to use the word like re-examine. Okay. It's not, it's not like we want to reopen the wound 100%, if you know what I mean. We don't want to do that. Right. But we, but we certainly want to look at the experience, talk about the experience, and be able to um, have some kind of connection to the feelings of that experience so that we can adequately take the necessary steps to move on past them. So it leads me to my opening question to you, Mr. Producer, and that is when you went through your treatment experience 50, 60, 75 years ago, um, at what point in your treatment experience time-wise did you move out of your physical adjustment and focus your mental and emotional, psychological, and intellectual energies on Dealing with any, you know, experiences that you may have incurred, you may have experienced that you wanted to be able to put behind you in a in a in a proper way so that you can move forward. Okay, so that's a good question. I, I would say the the answer is multi layered, right? Because there's there's the answer of when I was probably ready to do such a thing, which might have been uh, around the 30-day-ish, give or take, mark. Uh, when it actually happened, probably more around the, the beginning of the second trimester, the term that we've coined here, uh, around the three-month mark, and it was via an extendeds group. Now, I don't know if we've ever even spoken about an extendeds group here on this show, um, so only folks who are familiar intimately with the TC and what the TC brings would be familiar with an extended group. But for those who are listening who are not, uh, it's essentially a very in-depth group that uh, runs all day. So it's a group that runs from the morning you're with your group all the way uh, through dinner. I believe usually at least the way it was done here was dinner was when the first time kind of the group ended and you reconnected with the entire family. But breakfast was had in your little extended group, the, the maybe the four or five peers that were selected within the whole family to be in your particular group in some uh, secluded part of the facility. And you would have your breakfast in that group and your lunch in that group. And um, everyone had an opportunity to dive really, really deep and kind of like you said, maybe re-examine some of the things that may have taken place in your life that you wanted to put on the table and felt like you maybe needed to move past. And for me, I believe that was about the three-month mark, if I can remember correctly. Okay. And 
how, how did it come about? How did the – are you saying that this – so the, the jumping off point for you was the extended group? Yeah, I think so. Uh-huh. Okay. To where to where we really really like re, like the the reexamination if you will was surgical uh for lack of a better term. Like <laughs> yeah. we got we got into it. Um so let, those, me, the, let me just let me just go ahead. I, I don't mean to interrupt you, but I think it's good to also let our audience know that the the old school extended group, of course, you know, there was no getting out of the room. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So in one way, shape, or form, you were going to share your experiences. Um, so, uh, and with the assistance of your peers, which was very important because it was the establishment of trust with the peers that you had in the room that mm-hmm. created an atmosphere, especially after the first person put their toe in the water. Then it kind of made the way for everyone else to feel comfortable, to trust, and to feel uh, uh, like they can uh, really get down to, to get down to business. So I guess my question to you is, if the extended group was kind of the, the jumping off point, and 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 if the extended group is is a jumping off point, that's a significant jumping off point because the extended group, like you were saying, is just all about getting into those experiences. There's no fluff involved right. in the extended right. group. Go, go ahead. Yeah, no, that that's absolutely correct. And so I would say that that was essentially my experience. Now, the the topics that I mentioned in there had been broached, you know, briefly uh, in in you know certain groups or just with my peers, maybe with my roommate at night or whatever, um, to where you were you were taking a look at some of that stuff or you had started to discuss it. But as far as really getting into it, I would say that was the jumping off point. And I and I say that because. After that experience, um, that topic became actually kind of easy to talk about, and uh, and you were more likely to share it in groups or or get back to your peers at you know uh, during some free time or whatever. Um, it didn't have the same power that it had before that opportunity presented itself. Right. And one of the things or the or the themes which kind of made that. Uh, group dynamic uh, successful was that was all it was geared to. There was there was nothing else that was going to be discussed in the group that was surface related. We were dedicating the time to traumatic experiences or well, however you would define them, whether they're traumatic or not, experiences that you wanted to speak to that were holding you back in some way, shape, or form and you wanted to start the process, continue the process, or end the process of moving past whatever it was so that you can get on with the business of recovery. Right. And, and, and like I said, one, one of the positives to that, in that group dynamic, um, and, and what we have to talk about is, okay, well, how do we do that since we, we no longer do extended groups? But So how do we get people to kind of do what we used to do in extended groups? But – because you couldn't leave the room and because the focus was so narrow to those things, you know, a person just couldn't pick something out of their hat and say, hey, you know, you know, I'm traumatized over, you know, losing a championship game. No, that's not going to fly. Right. We're going we're gonna to tell you to get over that. Okay. 
We want things. And what we're talking about when we say you can't heal what you can't feel, we're talking about things that hold people back. We're talking about things that even if not uh, cognitively being aware, that if people were able to take a step back and, and look at their behavior, their decisions, their experiences, and be able to see whether or not it is how certain experiences has shaped how they've acted, how they've behaved, decisions that they have made or decisions they have not made, and how do we now laser target those things so that with the goal being when I leave treatment, when I leave treatment, these things will no longer negatively impact me doesn't mean that they disappear. And we want to put that out there right away because I think that's a it's a it's a I won't say it's a myth, but I think sometimes people are going into uh the discussion thinking that this experience just disappears from me. No, it doesn't disappear. It doesn't disappear at all. But what we certainly want to happen is that the experience is no longer going to dictate what you do, how you behave, and, ha- and, and as a result, no longer have a negative impact on your life, regardless of what the experience is. And obviously, you yourself, Mr. Producer, and me, being in the industry as long as we've been, I, I would say, and correct me if I'm wrong, that we've probably heard everything from A to Z. So I don't think we're going to hear anything that's going to shock us. Right. Okay. Um, And so with that, knowing that addicts have numerous and many different experiences that are negative in the course of the addiction lifestyle, okay, and even before, sometimes traumatic experiences predate drug use, substance use, whether or not it's a precursor, whether or not it's the cause, we don't know until we get into it, obviously. But sometimes the experience happened long before or shortly before the person even started using drugs. And, and the drug use may or may not be a manifestation of the experience that they've had. We don't know. But let's say that it is, Okay. Obviously, as we keep repeating, the goal is to examine that and work towards the experience no longer defining the person, no longer dictating what it is that they do, how they do it, and decisions that they make. Now, I wrote a couple of things down, some feelings. I wrote some feelings down that are usually the... Uh, you know, the, the significant feelings that hold people back from not only moving past an experience, but from even, you know, examining and touching on an experience because of, A, how painful it is. B, how much hurt is associated with the experience. Mm-hmm. 
see if the experience has created feelings of resentment. D, if the experience has created feelings of rejection. E, if the experience has created feelings of fear, insecurity, inadequacy. Those things, one or more, and usually there will be one or more. The one, by the way, the one feeling that I am noticeably leaving out is anger. And the reason I'm leaving that one out is because that one is usually easily displayed. That one's usually <laughs> up front and visible. <laughs> yeah, always. <laughs> so we don't need to touch on that one because there's no difficulty in that one coming to the forefront. Oh, yeah, no. We are all pros at displaying our anger for sure. Right. It's you, don't have, you, don't have to talk, you don't have to talk me into uh, getting in touch with my anger. <laughs> That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> it's these other feelings that we have to drag out, that we have to dig deep on, that we have to, uh, you know, kind of relinquish the the control uh, of holding on to these things in order to be able to move past the experience. Getting somebody to understand that, see that, and buy into that is very difficult. Which is probably why, in retrospect, and I'm glad you brought up the extended groups, which is probably why the extended group or the marathons, which were groups that went for at least 24 hours, so you call it an extended, extended group, um, were so successful because there's no place to run, no place to hide. And, and if somebody else is digging deep and sharing and experiencing feelings regarding what they're talking about. Like I said, it provides a certain element to the environment that allows others to feel safe, trust, comfortable with uh, letting go of their experiences also and talking about them and examining them. So hurt, pain, rejection, resentment, fear, insecurity, inadequacy, all of these things that tie to experiences that you know, addicts may have and things that they bury, 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 and I'm saying bury, B-U-R-Y, bury it very deep, and it has to come out. Because if it doesn't come out, and it's a significant experience, and it's an experience that has impacted you and, and still impacts you today based on how you go about living your life, okay, then eventually we're going to circle back around and end up back in the same spot. And I think you mentioned this before in our old show, our, in our, our last show, I should say. We used to have this thing about uh, called uh, holding on to a corner of the bag. That's right. And negative reservations. And negative reservations could be many, many, many different things. And most people used to think that we're just talking about the obvious things, you know, thinking about or wanting to use after treatment and not talking about that. That's a negative reservation. Thinking about or wanting to get back into an unhealthy relationship but not talking about it, that's a negative reservation. Well, another negative reservation is having 
unconfronted feelings regarding an, an experience or a traumatic experience and not talking about it and, and bringing it to the fore and digging deep into it and getting underneath it and being able to uh, get to a, a, a place where we can cope and deal with it effectively and positively. So if you know these things exist and you consciously choose not to, and I say consciously choose, versus consciously say, hey, I have this issue. I want to work on it, but I don't know how to do it. Mm-hmm. Okay? That's different. Okay? But if you consciously choose not to share it, not to expose it, not to say, hey, I, I know I need to get underneath this, that's a negative reservation. And negative reservations usually, I'm not going to say 100% of the time, but usually in the high 99th percentile, uh, cause the addict to end up back in the same place that they were. And oftentimes it takes an external party to point out that the catalyst for the addict ending back up in the same position are these things. Mm-hmm. Or this particular thing that they chose not to address, didn't bring to the fore, didn't you know, um, honestly bring it forth. And this is what we talk about when we say about being honest. You know, there's there's the obvious honesty, which, you know, in the in the context of treatment, is 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 unimportant to me. I'm talking about the person being honest with themselves first. And doing all the things that they need to do, whatever they may be, to get themselves on the recovery path in the strongest manner, with the strongest foundation. And if they consciously choose to not cover all the bases and do all the things that are necessary for a person to have the strongest foundation, then they're just setting themselves up. And this is one of the areas when it comes to your life experience as an addict or, or before you became an addict or even post-treatment if, an experience, if you encounter an experience after that. Um, but we can't heal these things. We can't heal these experiences and move forward and pass them unless we can get to a place where we can talk about them, feel them to a certain extent, attach uh, – Attach feelings to the experience. So, you know, like name it. Um, Name the feelings that are associated with this experience. Um, So it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to. So if something was very hurt, painful and hurtful, it doesn't mean that you have to recreate the hurt and pain, but that you can identify that, hey, that was very painful to me. And I, I experienced a lot of hurt behind that. So just being able to verbalize it and associate the name of the feeling to the experience is very important versus saying, well, I don't know how I feel or I don't know how it felt. So, you know, counselors, we, it's our role to kind of be able to know whether or not the person is struggling with actually knowing the names of feelings, being able to verbalize them, uh, uh, appropriately associate them to events and and experiences in their life, 
so that they can learn how to talk about the experience and then attach feelings to it. Not everybody knows how to do that. I used to always say when people came into treatment that 65% of what we're going to talk about, you already know. You've learned this from your parents, grandparents, uncles, aunts, etc. So we're just going to reinforce it or reignite it to get it going again. But the other 35%, which is learning about feelings and all things like that, not everybody knows this stuff. Right. I had to learn it. So most people aren't in tune with their feelings in that way. You might uh, consciously be aware that you're upset and, and you're going through feelings, but whether or not you can name them is a different story. So we always presume that it's, it's better to teach people the names of feelings and how to associate them with experiences so that when they talk about their own personal experiences, they can, they're able to say, I was hurt by that. I experienced a lot of pain behind that incident. I felt rejected when that happened to me. I have a lot of resentment behind this experience. Um, I'm still fearful regarding things like this. You know, I feel very insecure in this area, or I feel inadequate with my abilities in this regard. So they'd be able to use those terms to appropriately identify and, and um, speak to their experiences. Now, how does that help them moving forward? Because remember, we did say, Mr. Producer, it does not change the experience. doesn't make it go away. doesn't make it disappear. Okay, because once you experience something, you know, it's part of you. That's right. It's in your memory bank. But what what can happen and what should be uh, the ultimate goal is being able to change how you think about something and even how you feel about something. So you can't change what happened. But you may be able to change your perspective of the incident, of the event, of the experience. You may be able to change what you think about it. You may be able to change how you feel about it today, not back then. See, back then I felt angry. I felt hurt. I was afraid. You know, I had all of those feelings back then. Where I want to get to today is being able to say, I no longer feel hurt. Regarding this experience, I was hurt when it occurred, and I did feel hurt behind it for many years. But today, I can say that I no longer feel hurt behind it. I no longer feel pain behind it. I'm in a better place with that experience. And I'm now able to move forward from it. That's ultimately, that's the ultimate where you want someone to get. Now, that process takes time and the length of time is different depending on the experience depending on the person and so and how long they've you know they buried it deep deep down and 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 how how deep the experience is and all of that and what it is all of that stuff is all you know specific to the person but the goal should never be the goal should be the same for everybody is to get to a place where i don't feel today 
about the experience like I did when the experience happened. Mm-hmm. And even if you've just moved a little bit, even if you just moved a little bit, because, again, it's a process. It doesn't happen overnight. And so if something happened when I was 12 and I was 30 when I started to broach it and discuss it and, ex- and explore it and expose it and all of that, okay, well, that's, eight, that's 18 years that has gone by. So there should be no expectation that in 12 months, 6 months, 12 months, even 18 months, 24 months, that I should move from where I was at 12 to where I am at 30. So it's a process. But we have to dive, we have to dive you know, into the pool or jump into the pool, even if it's at the shallow end, three-foot end, and eventually start the process of walking to the deep end, you know, where it's where up to where, Mister Producer, up to up to the shoulders at least. Uh, it's, yeah, at least, yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe the chest, maybe the chest. <laughs> chest, okay, a up to the chest area. All right, up to the chest area, out in the Caribbean, Caribbean waters. So you know, warm waters, eighty degree waters, um, and that's where you want to get to, and eventually walk back out and be able to say, like we said, that hey. I'm in a different place. So if you can feel it, you can heal it. But if you don't want to touch it, or you want to tiptoe around it, surface, and and just intellectually discuss it, then the chances of being able to heal it so that I can move forward are going to be more remote. I'll never say it's impossible. But it is remote because we, and as humans, being emotional beings that we are, it's my firm belief. I'm not saying it's an absolute. I'm just saying it's my firm belief that in order to heal emotional things that are troubling to us, negative experiences, uh, to mentally and emotionally, psychologically, spiritually, physically heal from it, we have to be willing to dive into it. And that's very hard for people to do. It's easier said than done. But you know how they talk about, Mr. Producer, the secret? You ever heard about that that movie, The Secret? The Secret? Uh, It sounds familiar. I don't know why it sounds familiar, but it does sound familiar. Well, we always talk about the secret in the substance use treatment arena. The secret to a client successfully, you know, getting all that they can out of the treatment experience and succeeding in the recovery process is tied to their willingness and then their ability to get into the feelings of the issues, experiences, and events that have occurred in their life that have a role in where they ended up. And those that can do it first are willing. You have to be willing first because you could be willing and not know how. That's fine. We'll teach you. We'll show you. So the first thing is a willingness. So if a person doesn't have the willingness to dig it, dig into it, then there's a stalemate there. 
because uh, another human being can't force another human being to want to dig into something that's painful, traumatic, etc. Because it's it's natural for people to not want to do it. If you follow what I'm saying. <clears throat> mm-hmm. So since it's natural for us to not want to do it, the the first order of business is trying to get someone to be willing to do it. And sometimes that can take a lot of time. <clears throat> you might take two months, three months, four months, five months, just getting a person to a place of being okay and willing to talk about the experience. And oftentimes, depending on the setting, and this is, again, why the setting of the extended group was so powerful because the setting allowed for more than intellectual conversation. Example, and you can speak to this, Mr. Producer, how many times it just, how many extended groups did you experience, by the way? Just one? Uh, oh, boy. See, as it's a, kind of running together. For, yeah, right. From, I think, like, as a phase four, maybe, a phase four, a phase five, or maybe even a graduate, I was asked to come back and sit in one for the clients. But inpatient, I think, just the one. Okay. So, in that one extended group, What was it like, because we're, we're trying to talk about the environment in the group, that made it uh, conducive to people opening up and, and sharing about their experiences? So, again, I guess that would be uh, multi-layered, but um, I think the, the counselors or the staff were a big part of that. I think... What a huge dynamic so let's, was let's, was there was a mix between older members and younger members. Can I and, uh, for a yeah, go ahead. When you just so since we can walk people through this, so you said the staff, uh, the, the staff facilitators were very a very important part of of the environment, creating the creating the environment or how they existed in the environment played a very important role in in how the environment was. Absolutely. Okay. Go Absolutely. Ahead. Um, the idea that you know clearly behind the scenes, the, these were not names pulled out of a hat, right? So the staff must have had meetings and planned on who they thought would be a good mix to have in each group, and each group had a mix of older members, middle peers, and younger members. So I remember that distinctly, and I think that that also played a huge role because. Some of the older members or people who had maybe experienced a group before or had at least been there long enough to have really gotten into dealing with some of their core stuff uh, would go first. They would share first, and that would kind of uh, set the tone for the group, and you'd be able to see somebody go before you and and see how that worked out. So uh, there was some trust there. Um, So I think that also played a humongous role. Um, so it was kind of uh, in how the group was actually set beyond the facilitators and beyond older members sharing first. Um, the group just kind of had a – the environment felt uh, trustworthy, the way they set everything up, I guess you could say. And was it that you, – you just stated something about the older members. Was it purposeful, purposely done that the older members got the ball rolling? Yeah, I would imagine so, uh-huh. 
Okay. And would you say the reason for that is is that if someone who was around a little bit longer um, and kind of was probably more comfortable with sharing and talking about their experiences, that that would create help create an environment of trust, safety, and all of that so that newer members, younger members who probably were, weren't there yet probably got a kickstart or a jumpstart to being able to share. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So outside of the extended group now, so let's move that environment outside the extended group. Since we no longer do the extended group, the 18-hour group is what it was, um, the question becomes outside of any group context, but on the blacktop, in the backyard, in the dining room, during breakfast, lunch, and dinner, free time, etc. <clears throat> what should we do? What should be done? And I'm talking about clients and staff, right, to create an environment where people can start the process, jumpstart the process of sharing, talking about their experiences, and so on and so forth, with the ultimate goal being that we're we're eventually going to get into a group context where we're going to really start the process of digging deep, but if we can somehow get that process jumpstarted outside of there, where a person can start to start to feel a little bit comfortable, Jump, you know, nibbling around the edges, if you if you will, um, that would help a lot. So, what do we need to do to make that happen, or what should happen to make that happen? Uh, you're you're speaking currently. Yeah, in general. Yeah, I mean, just generally speaking, um, I don't know. You know, so older members, like I mentioned in the extendeds group, played a humongous role in kind of the creation of that environment. So generally speaking, that we have something established in the community like this where during free time or during self-care or downtime, uh, you know, that clients are getting back to one another, that clients are talking to each other. Maybe somebody comes back from an appointment or comes, uh, you know, is done with a family visit in. We can tell, the community can tell that maybe this person has, you know, had a rough go of it or is not, um, you know, not acting their normal self and checking in with them. And uh, roommates, I think that is also a, a huge key piece in all of this. As I remember, man, you have a lot of good conversations with your roommates. Um, and, yeah, just kind of having that process be an organic process where at the end of the night your roommate, you know, might talk to you about how your day went and what's going on. And, hey, you know, you shared this in group. And uh, how are you feeling about that now? Because I remember that was also a big part of the kind of the end of an extendeds group is that that dinner felt really good because everybody was getting back to everybody. And, you know, you could tell by just looking around, man, everyone had discussed some deep stuff and people had gone through it. And the environment just felt like a lot more conducive to, uh, you know, kind of getting back to one another and, and um, kind of this organic therapeutic process taking place where, you know, uh, people cared and people were people were discussing these kinds of things with one another. So I think, you know, meal conversations, dinner conversations, uh, you know, roommate off the floors time. These are all kind of sacred times where this kind of therapeutic thing can happen in an organic way. Right. So uh, one area that I want to touch on is because I think you spoke primarily in regards to residential type environments, uh, the outpatient environment where a person doesn't have those benefits that you just spoke about 
and outpatient can be anywhere from someone coming to uh, uh, to an outpatient uh, group one time a week or five times a week or five days a week. I should say one day a week or five days a week. And in that setting, you're kind of uh, you're you're kind of pushed up against the time clock a little bit more, meaning you don't have the uh, the advantage of someone in a residential setting who, when they come out of a group environment, they're still in a residential environment with their peers and so on and so forth. Whereas an outpatient, you you have to really be proactive in terms of you know keeping in contact with your peers outside of the group environment because after group you go home before group you're at home or wherever it is that you may be be living so there's really not a um a a congregate living um situation where people can stay together uh, even outside of the group context so it does require a, a little more commitment to uh you know, to address the things that you want to address, because when you're when group is over, group is over. Mm-hmm. And you're on the bus or in your car heading to work, to school, home, etc. And so it does require more of you in the outpatient setting to stay connected, to stay committed, and and all of that stuff. However, I don't care because. The ultimate goal should be what's driving us. The ultimate goal of of building and creating the strongest foundation possible to launch launch my recovery is what should be driving my thinking, my doing as I'm experiencing treatment in in, in whatever fashion, whether it's residential or outpatient, doesn't matter. That should be what's driving me um, is to build that foundation. And if I'm committed to building that foundation, then I should be committed to doing whatever is necessary within my power and necessary to build that foundation. And you will hear most people, counselors, clinicians, etc., in the industry say, well, what we mostly need from you, the addict, the the client, the resident, is we need you to not only we need you to participate, and that participation should consist of where appropriate in terms of in the group context, honestly, <clears throat> sharing, sharing relevant, sharing relevantly, I should say, and what I mean by that is, you know, d- digging deep. Not surface. It's okay for there to be surface in the beginning as you start the process of sharing. That's okay. But the expectation is that we will slowly, or as, as coach, the former coach of the UCLA Bruins, John Wooden, the late, John, late great John Wooden said, uh, be quick, but don't hurry. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> be quick, but don't hurry. And so we, we're saying the same thing. Uh, we want you to do it expeditiously, but carefully, okay? Because th- there is a time clock, and the time clock only applies to the time that you are you have access to treatment. It's not infinity; it's finite. 
And so right. I have to I have to maximize my time, um, maximize my time with my peers, maximize my time with my my counselors, maximize my time in the treatment environment, um, so that when I am transitioning out of treatment, that I have built the strongest possible foundation. If if however I have tippy-toed around my issues. I have not, you know, delved deep, attached feelings to experiences, feelings to events, feelings to incidences that have occurred that have negatively impacted me. If by the time I'm leaving my treatment experience, those negative experiences are still impacting me, still engulfing me, still uh, written all over my face, still dictating my daily existence in this world, controlling it, then I have not accomplished my goal. Because I can't, can't walk back out into society. I can't leave the treatment, treatment experience and have this these things, these experiences affect me, be affecting me in a negative way. I have to find a way to deal with them. You can't heal what you can't feel. And if I can't speak to it, attach feelings to it, name them, verbalize them, associate them with the experiences, if I don't do that or if I can't do that, and when I say can't, I mean that even though I may know how, so I'm, I'm consciously, for whatever reason, I can't do it. I'm choosing not to do it. Then there's a, there's a consequence to that. And the consequence is, is that the treatment experience is not going to be as successful as it could be or should be. Because I have, there are negative reservations swimming around in my life. So I guess the next charge, i.e., and it's always a charge for us, the counselors, is to how do we convince, how do we cajole, how do we elicit the information that's needed to ensure that clients are putting forth everything that they need to put forth to ensure their success. Now, Mr. Producer. If you can come up with a foolproof way to make that happen, that might be the million-dollar idea we've been scheming for. <laughs> it's, yes, it certainly would be. It absolutely would be. That might be the Ralph Cramden idea finally coming to fruition. But unfortunately, in this arena, we work with humans. Not widgets. Not widgets. So humans, uh, working with humans will always, uh, in in this arena that we're in, that will always be the challenge. That's the number one challenge. Um, But I think we have to get it across to, uh, it behooves us to get it across to our clients, um, our residents, how important that is. 
To me, everything, everything, everything is banking on that. Mm-hmm. So historically, you've seen in your time, I've seen in my time, what happens when a person doesn't maximize the use of their time in 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 discussing, you know, the those pertinent issues that will play a role and, and be impactful towards their success. Um, but instead, they can go through the treatment experience and they can do it very well. Um, but they're nibbling around the edges and they're kind of, um, using an analogy, skating through. Um, they've adapted and adjusted to the physical realm of treatment. And, and that's just the initial realm, you know, that you have to adapt to. But the key realm, because here's an irony, Mr. Producer. And you know I'm what? All I'm ears. Thinking, as I'm thinking about it, it ties right into our trimester configuration. Okay. Because an irony is that. Just like with the trimester, how when it first starts, the first trimester, a person comes into treatment, and they have to go through this process during the first trimester of acclimating themselves, getting used to the physical environment, and all of that stuff. And you and I have stated that in a perfect world, that usually takes a good 90 days, up to a good 90 days for that to happen. And then starts the second trimester. Well, we know to a certain extent those trimesters have been, I mean, it still exists. But where a person may be, especially in our program, has changed. And so some people may be in a certain modality while they're still going through the first trimester ups and downs. So that's a change. But what, what's not a change is that if it doesn't matter if the if ultimately if the person gets into that the psych, that that psychological second trimester where they should be now settled physically but now ready, you know, you know, they've, they've detoxified and the drugs are pretty much out of their system so they can mentally, intellectually, and emotionally, you know, get ready to, you know, attack the, the, the psychosocial aspects of their addiction. The, the uncomfortability that a person experiences in the first trimester, that physical uncomfortability, should, in essence, come back around near the end when they're kind of itching and ready to leave treatment, if you understand what I'm saying. Yeah, okay, okay. You know, so that's the irony I was talking about, is that it comes back around, that you, know, that you get physically acclimated, but it should, it should cycle back around where you become physically uncomfortable because you're ready to just, you know, nature has run its course and you're ready to launch to your next experience, whatever that may be. You that makes I mean? sense. So you know, like your your biological time is is really up in this where you're at right now, and you're kind of itching and ready to go, and and everything is kind of lined up appropriately. 
You're ready to go physically. You're ready to go clinically. You're ready to go emotionally, mentally, and spiritually, and all of that kind of starts to line back up. Ideally. Doesn't always work out that way, but that's fine. Whatever happens, we can deal with it. Yeah, that's right, because everyone's experience is unique, right? And so we're adept to, you know, deal with whatever is presented to us. Mm -hmm. But if you can't feel it, you're not going to heal it. I think that's all I have to say on that subject for now. I think it's great. I think kind of like you said, this is a big piece, the holy grail, if you will, um, of somebody's treatment experience and a huge predicator as to whether or not, you know, someone is going to leave and and be successful um, or or have a harder time. Uh, It's Mm -hmm. all kind of contingent upon what we've managed to get in touch with and deal with while we were here. Because like you said, uh, be quick, but don't be in a hurry. But the treatment clock is on you, and that's not something we can control all the time. And not to say that the process may not – or it, it absolutely does continue because in the treatment context, treatment environment, it doesn't mean that we can – that there's time to address multiple issues. So we certainly want the most impactful issue to be at the forefront because the, the, the experience and the process that you go through – you just apply to the other issues that you may identify as needing assistance with. And so either you can apply it and, and self, you know, self-administer, or you can apply it and seek assistance, if not from peers, but from other professional you know, sources. Right. But you should be familiar with what the process is by going through it, you know, once, twice, at least, during your treatment experience. Absolutely. And obviously, and obviously depending on the depths of the, the issue, will determine whether or not, hey, you know what, I need help going through this process with somebody versus, you know what, I can apply what I've learned and take myself through that process on my own. Right. So it depends. But either way, you should know the experience and the process. All right, now I think I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> beautiful, beautiful. Well stated, well said. All right, well, yeah, we're, we are uh, a little beyond it, but again, a very, very important topic, very, very important uh, subject matter when it comes to the world of recovery. So um, I think we did it justice. So let's, uh, we'll go ahead, we'll take our music break. We do see we got a couple callers on hold there uh, who want to participate in our next segment coming up, the Recovery Sport Time segment. So we will get to you guys in a little bit. We hope you've enjoyed the show to this point. Thank you for being patient. And uh, we will get to everybody on the other side.
up next is OCG Radio's Recovery Support Time, where our hosts provide support and guidance for your recovery-related questions and issues. Recovery Support Time, where it's our time to help you. Okay, welcome back to Roach on Recovery. Six four six five six four ninety nine zero nine. Oh, what was that there? Couldn't quite make out the number there. Six four six five six four ninety nine zero nine is the number. And and for for our new listeners, that's uh, Mr. Producer uh, acting like a child, <laughs> trying to catch me on the comeback when we come back from commercial. <clears throat> He's been trying to catch me for four years. 
or how long it's been? How long has it been? When did we start? November. Uh, yeah, probably three. Three and a half. Yeah, a little over three. Yep. Yep. All right. Uh, let's see. Let's go to our phones first before we hit the X Files. Let's go to who's been holding the longest. Let's go to Jonathan from the beautiful Half Moon Bay. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Um, yeah, I just had uh, a quick question for you guys. I need some advice on. Uh, uh, leaving basically a negative uh, relationship. It's an unhealthy relationship. I know this. That's how I feel. Um, but without, you know, negatively affecting the friendship, you know, and possibly relapsing. Oh, I'm sorry. I missed the question. <clears throat> oh, okay. I'm sorry. Um, basically, I'm. I need some advice on. Okay. Um, on. An unhealthy relationship I'm in right now. Right. Um, I'm basically trying to uh, leave the relationship in in a healthy way, you know, without possibly relapsing. All right. So, what's stopping you from doing so? Hope that um, the relationship could work out. Is this a is this a romantic relationship? Yes. And so you want to be able to end the romance but maintain the friendship. Yes. Good luck with that. <laughs> yeah. Joking, of course, I'm joking. I'm joking. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, so, it's easy to say goodbye. It, it, this is not healthy for me. It's not working out, but. I so just you know do, that there's going to be some negative, you know, conflict in between this. Um, well, that's a, that's a possibility. You do not get to control. Yeah, but you don't get to control what the other person may experience. That's correct. You can only control what you experience and how you go about enforcing these new boundaries that you're going to put into play. How the other person responds to that is out of your control. So you have to be prepared for both. They may be, hey, you know what? I agree. That's a good idea. I think it will be better for us in the long run. I also would like to maintain and be friends. So let's mutually go our separate ways, but, you know, stay friends, platonic friends. Or it could be, you know what? I hate you. You're dead to me, um, et cetera, et cetera. Either way, those are two extremes. Either way, you have to be prepared and be still willing, willing despite how you may feel, despite the mounting pressure to acquiesce and to give in and to do something different than what your, your mind and heart is telling you to do that is in your best interest. You have to remain steadfast. You have to remain you know, secure, confident. And whatever you may go through emotionally, just be willing to share it, talk about it, but don't allow it to, to allow your boundary walls to come down. Right. You know what I'm saying? And by the way, if you should do this, there will be extreme growth waiting for you on the other end. I'm feeling that. I'm feeling that. Because that's not easy to do. 
Thank you. You're welcome. Guys, have a great day. All right. All right, you too. Thanks for calling. Yes, oh, sir, the relationships. Producer. The relationships. Maybe it's about a. Maybe it's about another. Uh, it's been long enough for us to give another go around on a topic of relationships for our show. I know we've we've covered one specifically in the past, but now that we've been doing this for 17 years, it kind of all runs together as to the when. Well, as our longtime listeners are aware, <clears throat> both your humble host and your humble co-host are uh, happily married uh, gentlemen. And in order for us to do another show on relationships, I believe we both require prior approval from the from the spouse. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Yeah, good call. <laughs> um, no, but uh, yes, I think it's been it's probably been over two years. Wouldn't you say about two years since we did probably the relationship yeah. show? Yeah. Um. Yeah. So ordinarily, what this. What John from Half Moon Bay was talking about doing is you don't really hear that that often because usually just from your world experience and then from my world experience, would you say that it's usually 70% that the women is breaking off the relationship, 30% the man, or 80-20 or 60-40? What would you say the percentage is? Yeah, I'll throw a nice round 75-25. 75-25, right. So, I mean, we're the ones that are usually begging, groveling, you know, trying to hang on, hold on, you know, by the fingertips, and being brushed aside. You know, you know how, like, you brush your pants leg, you know. That's get right. Off me. <laughs> get away from me. So it's interesting to hear from a male perspective trying to – do what he believes is the right thing in the relationship context and, you know, move away from romance and move into a platonic state um, and uh, do it standing tall. Uh, not easy, not easy to do. <clears throat> so we support him in his growth. All right, back to the phones. Let's go to Shane from Pittsburgh. Welcome to the show. Hi, how are you doing? Good. How are you? Um, good. My question is, um, so, quick background. Uh, I've uh, been in institutions one form or another. I just turned 40, and um, I have a really hard time of um, dealing with fear of, like, everything in my normal life after living institutionally one form or another since I was 18 months old. Um, it leads uh, a lot to my drug use, um, and um, in residential situations, I'm I'm awesome. Um but outside of that, um, if I don't have somebody holding my hand or doing things for me, I, I tend to um, have a really bad fear of everything, um, paying bills, just normal stuff, all the way up to, you know, um, accomplishing goals. Um, so I, my question is actually, like, how do I get over that? Um, is it when you say you have a fear of everything, is is that uh, 
Is that a general statement or an accurate statement? Um, it's basically anything that um, seems insurmountable, um, paying bills on time, going to work on time, um, finding a job. Um, Let me stop you. Uh, wanting Let to go to school you. but not knowing how to sign up, just, just living me... everyday normal life that I see other people can do, I can't okay. for okay. some reason. So I want to go back to when you said uh, like paying bills. Is it, it's, it, it's not that I don't know how to do it. It's that, so you don't? Go it's, ahead. It's that I do know how to do it. It's that, that I've never done it. So anything that I've never done before, I, I have these these huge fears of, and my drug use becomes my solution because it okay. So if, those fears. if someone walked you through the experience of doing it, you know, sat with you, had you write out your checks, put it in the envelope, seal it up, stamp it, put it in the mailbox. If someone walked you through that with you, the, you know, the first, second, or third time, would would that be helpful? Of course, that would be helpful. Okay. But it's, it's, it's not just, that's on the mini school level. I'm t- and it goes all the my fears go all the way up to, like uh, for instance, last time before I am. Um, Entered a residential treatment program. I was, uh, I, I knew I was, I was on drugs, and I knew that I needed needed help, and I just couldn't reach out. I felt the fear and the shame of just placing myself in a position, knowing that everybody knows that I'm, I'm using again, and I couldn't. I wanted to go to school, to art school, and I would walk by the art school every day, and I would just have these fears of actually walking through the door and and trying to do anything because I didn't know how. And I, it's, I don't know if it's just it's something that's from being institutionalized and having everything done for me, or is it, you know, something just I need to get over? Or, like, how do I deal with it? I I, I don't know, Mr. Producer, but uh, when um, Shane, when we talked, when I gave you an example of what we would do in re- reference to, you know, a fear of paying your bills. Right. The process of what you would do applies no matter what the thing is. The process doesn't change. So like you said about going to art school and you just keep right. walking past it, you're afraid to go in. Well, we're just going to walk you in there and sign you up. Right. And then, then it's over. So it sounds that like a over. lot. It sound, okay, so what's, what would be the next part after that? So maybe the next part would be like I'd have to find all my classes or I'd have to try to support myself while going to school or it's just they, those those things that um, are usually figured out for me. When I have to figure them out for myself, I, I, I tend to like go back to what's easier and that's right. um, but what my past is. My past has been full of crime and, I got it. and I got drug it. use in it. But – you do know that once there's a know-how, meaning like once you have a template of what you, what you need to do, it's written down for you. These are the steps that you take to find art school, sign up at art school, find your classes. So all of that's you know, made clear to you how you go about doing that and then how you actuate it, how you actually do it. Okay? Mm-hmm. It then comes down to, this is what it sounds like, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, it then sounds like a a want to a want to do thing. Mm-hmm. 
because no, you, yeah, you're right. You you cannot allow or continue to allow your past experience of of institutional living to frame everything that's going to happen moving forward. So yes, a lot of things have been done for you, done for you. But okay. Some things, even though they've been done for you, you do know how to do them, okay? You just have to do them. So the question becomes, okay, well, how do, you, how do we get you to do them? Because you know how to do it. If you don't know how to do it, that's different. Someone has to show you how to do it, walk you through it, baby steps, hold your hand through it, and then once you know how to do it, the next step becomes, okay, Shane, how do we get you to now continue doing it on your own? That becomes a want to, if unless there is something else existing, okay, that prevents you from doing it, unless there is, if there isn't, yeah. it, be, it becomes a, okay, why don't you want to do it? Right. It just, it just seems like every time I go, to, I go to do something, I have to take 10 steps back before I can actually accomplish it, and then it becomes... Like, oh, my God, i got to do this, and then it's like, you know, it's not that I don't want to, because my wants are, are you, huge. It's my motivation, I think that... Let me ask you a question. You said you were 40? I just turned 40, yes. Okay. I'm going to ask you a question that you probably are not going to know what I'm talking about. So if, when I'm done asking, <laughs> once you hear it, think about yeah. it for a second, and then if you don't know what I'm talking about, just say, I don't know. Right. Are, you a ta- are you a time traveler? No, I'm not a time traveler. Okay. See, that expression, time traveler, has a meaning in the treatment world. What I mean by a time traveler, and it usually applies to people who are over the age of 30, okay, that you're in treatment, you're 30, you're 40, you're 50, okay, and because you have wasted a lot of time, right, so I'm now 40, I'm not 25 anymore, I'm not 21 anymore, okay? I mean, if I'm 40, I'm not even 30 anymore, so time, I've wasted a lot of time, and mm-hmm. you want things to happen very quickly. Yes. Okay? And listen to this part, it's very, very important. That wanting to happen, wanting it to happen very quickly is actually what stops people from actually doing it. Because they say, well, damn, I'm 40 years old. How old am I going to be by the time I finish art school? I'm going to be 42, 43 years old. You know, man, that's three years from now. And they Mm -hmm. do that for the next three years, not realizing that three years are going to go by either way. Right. It's going to go by either way. So it doesn't matter what age you are. If you want to do it, do it. And before you know it, you're going to turn around. Three years have gone by. Wow, I'm done with art school. But if you just sit around saying, oh, my God, you know, look how much time I've wasted. I'm 40. It's going to be three years before I'm done. You spend three years just doing that. That's what we call time travelers. They're thinking out in, ahead of time, out in the, in, in the future, and say, oh, man, that's five years away from now by the time I'm going to be done doing that. And so they, that stops them from just doing what it is that they want to accomplish. Getting it started. Start. You got to start. I don't care if you're 40, 50, 60, 70. You gotta, if you want to do it, you got to start. Mm-hmm. Do you love art? 
I love art. You sound like you love art. It's the only thing I'm good at. <laughs> what? If you and and if oh my goodness, if you love it, plus if you're good at it, because not a lot of people are good at it, by the way. If you love it and you're good at it, I don't know what else you need. Right. Those are the those are the main prerequisites. I gotta love it. Boy, it really helps if I'm good at it. If you love it and you're good at it, you'll never work. Right? That's so true. But then you don't. But then you don't make money till you die. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> so, in closing, Shane, what you have to, what you have to try and focus on is. You know what would help you? Do you write your goals what? down? Yes, I do. If, well, then if you write them down so they're no longer dreams, they become goals. You put them on paper. So if you have the goal written down to go to art school, all you have to do is actuate it. And all the other things, like, I, well, I've never experienced finding my classes or I'm worried about finding my classes. There are people at the school that will help you do that. There are people who are not at the school that will help you do that. You'll be surprised how many people will be willing to help you do it. But one thing is certain, one thing is certain, you have to do it. No one can do it for you. So true, so true. All right? All right, thank you. Okay, you're very welcome. Mr. Producer? Yes, sir. So one of the things I wanted to find out from this gentleman was... Whether or not this was a want to problem mm-hmm. versus something you know versus something else out there, because as you know historically, not always the case, but historically a lot of times you know it's not a can't do I can't do it I'm not able to do it I don't have the ability to do it it's really comes it's a want to do issue sure yeah desire and a desire not only desire. But a, a willingness to to actuate the desire, you know, you know, I want to go to, I want to become an auto mechanic or an electrician or what, whatever. I want to go to, you know, community college or college, whatever it is. I want to do those things. Those are just wants. They may even be dreams. They may even be goals since you put them down on paper. But unless you actuate, them, you know, you have to do something to actuate it. They just stay in that state. That's very true And your point about time is true also The the time traveler bit Where the time is going to pass one way or the other Right? And we've seen that time and time again And so you can certainly get stuck in that mode of Oh man, you know that, That I've missed my opportunity That time has passed I if I wanted to accomplish this, I should have started four years ago. And then you might find yourself having the same conversation with somebody four years from now saying the same thing. And had you just started when you were thinking about it last time, you'd be done. Absolutely. One of the things, um, and he, and he, I'm glad he, we touched on this with, in the conversation with him because it is something that, and we might have spoken about it on a couple of occasions, but I don't know if we uh, speak to it in our daily work um, enough. And that is 
one of the issues that I'm sure is present um, for some people uh, that are over the age of 30 is being over the age of 30 mm-hmm. and in treatment, especially if you've had treatment opportunities before, but even if you haven't, and you've been just out there you know, using and, and just being in the addict life and you know, years have gone by, time has passed by, and before you know it, you look up and, you know, and the first time that you're trying to make a serious effort at recovery and turning your life around, I'm 35, I'm 40, I'm 45, or 50. Um, and 15 years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years have been, um, I'll use the word wasted. I don't truly ever believe it's wasted, to be honest. Um, but the time has passed by. Um, you may or may not have been productive in all that period of time. And now you're in a, you're in a situation where you're kind of, you know, detoxing off of the drugs and you, your, your brain is clearing up. Your thinking is coming back, uh, to clearness. And we start to look back and say like, wow, damn, you know, it's, I've been doing this for 12 years. I look how much time I've wasted. Um, and, we kind of get stuck in that instead of, you know, looking ahead to say, okay, wow, you know what? My life is still ahead of me. Even if I am 40 or 50, my life or 60 or 70, if you're alive, your life is still ahead of you. Right. There's absolutely nothing, nothing that can be done about the time that has moved on. Only today, and we can plan for tomorrow. It's not promised, but we can plan for tomorrow. Um, but only today and tomorrow is all, that's all we can focus on. So, and we used to talk about this, and you know, during my time in treatment, because um, there were a lot of you know people in their forties and fifties, and so it was a subject of conversation, um, and how to. You know, square ourselves with that, and I'm not talking about me because I was pretty young at 24 when I went in. But others who are older, and and just to say about myself, even at 24, I was pissed off about the six years that I wasted. Right. So I can imagine how somebody at 34 or 44 would have felt. But that was the majority. That was you know the the average age was in the upper 30s. So you had a lot of people who were in there late 20s, early 30s, mid 30s, and above 40 and into their 50s that were in treatment. And so that is an issue. I don't think it gets talked about a lot. Um, that has, at least that's been my experience here. It doesn't get talked about a lot, but I'm sure people think about it, they dwell on it, and um, we have to be proactive in talking about it so that we can uh, be proactive in moving them off of that spot because it's not a productive spot to be in or a place to be. I don't care how much time has passed you by in terms of uh, your addiction. I always, Mr. Producer, go back and talk about Steve Cunyon. He was the assistant director at Swan Lake when I was a trainee. He was on his, he was the assistant director. He had failed three times. And this was his fourth go around at recovery and at this time he was an assistant director and um, but he succeeded on the fourth try 
you know, you and I always talk about, well, Bob, what happened? What would have happened if they would have just given up? Right, right. Not made a, you know, not, you know, gathered themselves back and said, you know what, I, I need to keep trying. And one of the things Shane mentioned when he said about, uh, ex- you know, experiencing shame and, and, and embarrassment and what have you, of, of people knowing about him, you know, being an addict and having to come into treatment and all that stuff. Um, everybody experiences, you know, goes through those feelings. Everybody. I, I've never encountered one person who didn't experience that. The question becomes whether the shame and embarrassment is so overwhelming that it stops you from doing it, stops you from taking that first step. And it's our hope that that's never the case because everybody experiences that. You are, you know, no one is alone. No one gets to uh, bypass those feelings. The good thing, at least from my experience, Mr. Producer, maybe you could speak to yours. My experience, the good thing is that coming into treatment, the way that you're welcomed in allows that to just dissipate so quickly. Because number one, you realize you're not alone, number one. Right. Everybody right. everybody else has felt the same exact way. And so you're like, oh, who, who gives rats behind? I'm not alone. So you realize, hey, how about you? How, how long did that last with you? Well, uh, for me, no, I'd say it was gone pretty quickly and, and actually probably, if nothing less than for a complete lack of maturity. Uh, because when I came in here at 17, it was like to hell with this place and everybody else. I don't give a damn. And uh, so you coming in as a teenager, I think there's just a lack of emotional maturity to where you don't even realize yourself like, hmm, yeah, you're about to do something where there could be a great stigma attached. Uh, you know, you're you're going through a process that maybe you you could have done better not to go through or that you have wasted time in your life or, you know, all of that takes a level of emotional maturity for you to be able to reflect and actually think, oh, wow, yeah, there's I should probably be doing other things with my life right now or I, I should have accomplished more uh, than I have to this point. But being a 17-year-old uh, who didn't give a damn, uh, I don't think I ever really – Fully, it never fully really set in maybe until way beyond actually maybe after even graduation and then starting to take classes uh, toward uh, the AOD program that I was working toward at the time where I thought, oh yeah, this is, this is probably what I should have been doing or this is what people my age were supposed to be doing. And uh, so maybe never actually experienced that while, while in treatment. Hmm. Now, how long was it before your um, – because our audience should be aware that Mr. Producer, unbeknownst to him probably uh, cognitively at the time, but he had the privilege of having two uh, special assignment persons – Two people assigned to him specifically to marshal him through his early uh, early recovery experience. 
um, That's in, right. uncon- in an unconventional manner. Very much uh, so. <laughs> <laughs> so um, he did not have the luxury for, uh, for uh, uh, an extended period of time of having a bad attitude. That's right. Because cause he was exposed to uh, uh, verbal uh, verbal consequence. I'm sure they may have been physical consequence threatened. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yes, I was given a I was given the combination of the East Coast and West Coast treatment. There you go. There you go. <clears throat> but he survived it. Came outside on the other end, and uh, all the better uh, for it. Um, and it's unfortunate that many more have not experienced uh, uh, special. Uh, treatment experience that, that Mr. Producer experienced. That's right. That was uh, that was pretty it much has, it, one of a kind. It, it has a it has a high success rate. <laughs> <laughs> it does. Yeah, it does indeed. Unconventional, Actually, but yeah. high success rate for sure. I think it has a 100% success rate. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's one right for now. one. It's that's a high yeah. batting average right there. How much time we got, sir? Uh, let's see. Uh, we got four thirty-five, so maybe about a couple more minutes, two more minutes. All right. Well, we really get to have uh, some extra time um, to talk about another favorite topic of ours, and that's uh, you, uh, airplanes. And, and if I understand, you are planning a trip in a month or so. Uh, that's right. End of May, at the end of this semester here. Uh, going, I don't know if, I don't know, I probably people from New York wouldn't consider Chicago back East. I don't know if Chicago, generally speaking, is considered Midwest or back East, but, uh, Midwest. I'm not sure Midwest. why it's considered Midwest. Yeah. So that's right. We'll be taking a flight, uh, to Chicago and then we're, uh, the, nothing else actually involves a plane. We're renting a car and we'll be going to St. Louis for a couple of days, Nashville for a couple of days and Indianapolis, and then what back airline? to Chicago. Uh, ooh, I want to say Alaska. Okay. What aircraft? Uh, that you know, I don't. I don't know. I'll have to check the tickets. They must assign the aircraft right off the bat, right? I imagine they do. Yeah. So, if I can recall correctly, in my mind's eye, the seating arrangements when picking seats, it was a uh, one middle aisle and then three seats per per uh, side, if you will. So there wasn't, like, seats in the middle. So it was a single-aisle plane? Single-aisle, yeah, three seats okay. on either side. Okay. So that could be anything. 737, Airbus, A321, 757. But neither here nor there, uh, since you'll be flying into Chicago, uh, which is surrounded by, if not one, one or more Great Lakes, yeah, Lake Michigan for sure. And uh which for whatever reason, I'm no expert on uh um airstreams, but does create turbulence over the, but you've flown in Chicago before, correct? Uh yeah, my friend, I I have flown it was a pit stop on the way to Vermont. Right. And uh it was the most terrifying landing I've ever experienced. <laughs> <laughs> I, I thought we were certainly going down into Lake Michigan, no doubt about it. I mean, I'm talking the plane was rocking through the whole thirty minute descent. And uh what the waiter Stuart the stewardess for women, so a steward for men, maybe. 
I think we call them flight attendants. Flight attendants. Okay, so the flight attendant did tell me uh, afterwards, after I could laugh about it, uh, my T-shirt drenched in sweat, um, did say that sitting in the back of the plane, because we were literally the last row of the plane, um, that that is also the place where if there is turbulence, you're going to feel it even more in the tail. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, I, I was hit with a double whammy. And uh, that was still, uh, I hadn't done as much flying then, so that was still in, in the greater peak fear days, if you will. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the tail, the, the rear of the plane experiences a little bit more flex, which is built in. So it will, you know, give and go with the turbulence, which is a good thing, obviously. Um, but going into Chicago anyway, it, it's always it's always bumpy. And I don't know if it's because of the air, you know, the air stream around the, the Great Lakes. Um, but it's always, uh, you know, rocking and rolling coming in there. <clears throat> yeah. But, you know, unfortunately, being on a single-aisle plane, unless it's like a 757, which is a little larger, um, you're going to feel it more. Right. Right. So. Exactly. That's what you had said before. The larger the, larger the plane, the less you feel it. So. Yeah. We'll just have to keep our fingers crossed. <laughs> and then, because you're descending, you're exposed a little bit more to feeling it because, you know, you're going. Usually, when you hit air pockets, it air pockets you go down anyway, right? Right. So right. you can imagine as you're descending and you hit air pocket, then you drop more than you're, you know, you expect to drop, um, uh, and that yeah. just keeps happening. But yeah, that's. Vaguely what I remember. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man, yeah. So uh, we'll just, yeah, fingers fingers crossed that it, it can, it'll be as smooth as it can be anyway. Yep. All right. Well, we're up against it. I'm going to hit them with the show close. All right. Uh, but we do thank everybody for the ongoing support, for those who called just to listen in, those who called to participate in the Recovery Sport Time segment, those who uh, follow us or catch our shows in the archives. We appreciate it. We will catch you all in a handful of weeks here for our exclusive NFL draft episode. We wish everybody a uh, safe and productive couple of weeks and a fun couple of weekends.
That's our show for this evening. Thank you for listening. Be sure to listen to our next broadcast Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time on blogtalkradio.com forward slash OCG Radio. Like us, friend us, and follow us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash OCGWorkCA and on Twitter at OCGWorkCA. You can listen to podcasts of all our shows on iTunes under Roach on Recovery or on our Blog Talk Radio homepage. This has been a presentation of OCG Recovery Radio. Some days, some days, some days,